8, and we're getting an early start today on the message, Brother Larry, so we might get out early today. <clears throat> we'll see how that goes. Romans chapter number 8. begin reading in verse number 5, and we'll read down through, <coughs> excuse me, but we'll read down through verse number 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message this morning and speak to our hearts. And I pray that you'll use it to encourage us and to challenge us. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will give guidance and clarity of thought and mind today, both in speaking your word and in hearing your word. And I pray that he will be able to do his work in our hearts as he would see fit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <coughs> We're living in a day where uh, the world seems to be getting worse and worse. In fact, we ought not be shocked by that. I, my, every once in a while I'll talk with somebody here from the church or one of my relatives and they'll uh, talk about how, boy, I'll tell you, the world just seems to be getting worse and worse and I, I just don't know what we're going to do if it keeps going this way. And yet the truth is, there you go, Miss June, we know from Scripture that when these things start to happen, the Bible says, lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. And we know that these things have to be. The Bible talks about uh, him not coming until uh, first there be a falling away. And uh, the fact that the world will wax worse and worse. The Bible says in the last days that men will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And uh, that the world will continue to wax worse and worse with false doctrine and false prophets and false teachers. And the truth is, Brother Larry hit the nail on the head. In fact, I thought he was going to preach my message this morning in Sunday school. And uh, we've talked about the fact that we many times as Christians gauge ourselves or try to measure ourselves and find out how we're doing spiritually by our distance that we stay from the world. And what we don't take into consideration often is that the world is continuing to move. And so if the world continues to get worse and worse, then if we stay the same distance from the world, we also, as Christians and God's people, are getting worse and worse. And so there's a problem with gauging our, our salvation and our spiritual walk, our time with God, uh, the, the, the fact that we're trying to bring glory to Him. There's a problem with using the world as our standard to measure from. And uh, what we need to do is come back to God's Word and try to say it, lay it alongside our, our life. And several uh, several uh, weeks ago, we preached a message on that from Romans chapter 12 about God's yardstick or God's measuring stick. And uh, just a, a very brief chapter in Scripture that gives a lot of things that we can measure our life to and find out how are we measuring up to God's Word. But the truth of the matter is we live in a very sinful world, don't we? Uh, we've taught this before from Scripture. There are basically three types of people, uh, three categories of folks that the Bible speaks of very clearly. The Bible speaks of a natural man, and the natural man in Scripture uh, refers to a man who's never trusted Christ as his Savior before uh, and is lost. In fact, the Bible says that he cannot, cannot understand spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned. 
But there's the possibility of being saved and having the Holy Spirit come and dwell inside of us. And by the way, uh, they're not two separate things. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. We'll find that here in chapter 8 in just a little bit. That He comes to indwell us. And uh, when He comes to indwell us, then God encourages us and, and challenges us and commands us, according to Scripture, that we're not to walk after the flesh nature anymore, but now we're to walk after the Spirit. And so we have now a new course. Uh, we've changed 180 degrees. Our mindset is different. Something is new inside of us. The sad fact of the matter is we're still in the flesh, though, aren't we? And the Bible te- speaks of a man who is a carnal man, a man who perhaps has trusted Christ as his Savior, and maybe even at one time was walking after the Spirit. But the law of sin and death came back into his life, and as we spoke about in Sunday school this morning, through two ways, mainly, through seeing and through hearing the enticement of the carnal man, a lot of folks that are Christians that know they're on their way to heaven will return to a carnal lifestyle. Now, there's certainly something to be said of that, and we're not going to preach on that lifestyle. I just want to make sure we understand those three categories But generally speaking, the carnal man is going to have one of two things happen to him if he continues in that carnality. The first thing that could happen to us is God will chasten us. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, he scourgeth and chasteneth every son. So if you belong to Christ, if you are a child of God, and you are living carnally, then there will come a chastening. The Bible speaks of that. If we continue in that, the Bible speaks that there is a a sin unto death. And the idea that at some point God will say there's no uh, recourse here. He, in his foreknowledge, knows whether that person will ever repent and get right and get back with the Lord or whether he's going to continue in his carnality. And uh, at some point God will turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, according to the book of Galatians, that the soul might be saved. And uh, so we have the idea that there is a possibility of someone who living a carnal life, unrepented and continuing in it, Uh, can get to a point where God just calls him on home. And so there's a danger in that. And by the way, if you're living a carnal life and there's no chastening going on, then I would very, very seriously look at my heart and say, have I ever been saved? Am I a child of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I ever trusted him as my Savior? Because my Bible teaches me that if I live carnally and I'm a child of the King, he's going to bring chastening on my life. We come to Romans chapter number 8, and we begin reading these verses in verse number 5, and the Bible says, For they that are after the flesh, now this is the old nature, this is the old man, if you will, the fleshly nature, the things that are spoken of when it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so it speaks here of the old fleshly nature, the old man, if you will. And in verse number 5, <clears throat> he says, For they that are after the flesh... Do mind the things of the, what? Flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is, what's this? Death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Have you ever been there or known of somebody that was saved and knew they were on their way to heaven, but they were living a life that was full of misery? There was no joy. There was no victory. They walked through and they plodded through life and it seemed like just no joy at all. If they were truly born again, the Bible says that that could be the result of living this carnal lifestyle. 
For because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh, notice the word here, cannot please God. It is beyond their ability. It is impossible that when we are living in a carnal lifestyle, we cannot please God. Somebody uh, has heard or has said before, and I've heard people say this, well, it doesn't matter what I do outwardly, God knows my heart. No, it does matter. Because when we're living carnally, we cannot, we do not have the ability to please God. If we were to live carnally and bring pleasant, uh, uh, pleasing to God, then God would have to change His nature. Now, now, this ought to be encouraging to us as Christians. We're going to look at something here very, very critical in just a moment. But I want you to hold your place. You go to the very end of your Bible and uh, pull back uh, just one book, very, right at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. The little book of Jude, and we're going to look in verse number 6. The Bible says here, And the kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the... Uh, two beings. He has created angels, and he has created you and me, humans. And the Bible teaches very clearly that the angels left their first estate. They left the state of perfection, or at least some of them did, and we know of the rebellion in heaven that that Lucifer had, and uh, how that uh, a a host of the angels followed after him. But I want you to notice the privilege that there is to you and I. Uh, uh, turn over with me to Second Peter, if you will, chapter number 2. Second Peter, chapter number 2. This is something that to me is, is beyond my comprehension, and, and yet it's something exciting to me. In Second Peter, chapter number 2, in verse number 4, the Bible says, For if God spared not the, what's the next word here? The angels that sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them unto chains and darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared the old world but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And he goes on to say here, and turning the Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live God ungodly and delivered, notice this, just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for the right, that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, those are the two things we talked about this morning, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, I want you to notice something here. We find that in verse number 4, the Bible says that these angels that had sinned, God spared not. Now, I don't know if that means as much to you sometimes as it means to me at least when I think of this. Because these angels that sinned against God like you and I sinned against God were not spared. They did not have a choice to be redeemed. You and I, on the other hand, because of the great love wherewith He loved us, have the great privilege of God, a just God, a holy God, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, loved us enough to give Himself He might redeem us unto Himself. And the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, 
and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The message this morning is primarily this. We've lost what it is to know the sinfulness of sin. Our world is, is, is going crazy. I mean, it's at the point where it's almost to the point of insanity of the fact that the morals of our nation, the morals of society as a whole, not just in America, but even worldwide and humankind, of the morals of the world have begun a slippery slope and have continued to digress. I was uh, reading a, a book several years ago that was recommended by a pastor down in Stillwater, Oklahoma, in one of the messages I heard him preach, Brother Wayne Hardy, uh, called Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Slouching Toward Gomorrah. And in the book, the writer, the author says this. He says that there is a declining of the morality of America. And he uses this phrase, defining deviance down. And, and basically what he's saying in this phrase, defining deviance down, is that every generation begins to center its morals at the extreme of the generation before it. Uh, I'm going to try to illustrate this this morning a little bit differently than what I normally do with brother, what Brother Larry mentioned this morning. And um, Brother Keith, would you mind helping me out this morning? And let's see, I need somebody else to help me that can help me. Smitty, would you mind helping? Could you, do you mind coming on up here and help me out with this? And uh, maybe George, would you do that for me? I'm not going to have you all sing or anything. Okay, come on up here for just a minute. And uh, I'm gonna, if you guys will stand right over here, I'm going to put Brother Keith right here for a minute. We're going to talk about Brother Keith being a first-generation Christian. Let's, let's say this is a young man who uh, trusted Christ as his Savior. He, he gets in the Bible. He walks with God. And, and God begins to do a work in his life and causes him to be in what we call in the Scripture, what we find in the Scripture, as walking after the Spirit. Walking after the Spirit. In fact, uh, he expresses and, and, and out of his lifestyle comes the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith. And against such, the Bible says there's no law against that. And so Brother Keith gets saved, and he makes a conscious decision. I am going to center my moral core on the principles of God's Word and God's Word alone. But there are certain things that are out of center of his morality. And we're going to say that to his left is extreme good. This would be going above and beyond, or what the Bible would refer to as above reproach. In other words, the Bible says this, but rather than just be there, I, I sometimes will have an extreme goodness to my morality. I'll take what my Bible says, and I'll even go what the Bible refers to as the second mile, if you will. I'm going to go above and beyond what the minimum requirement of doing right is, and we're going to call this the extreme good of his morality. And I'm going to have you stick your left arm out just like that. Stay right where you're at. But he also has, and all of us do, by the way, wherever we center our morals, we have some things that we say, okay, I'm going to go a little bit beyond. We call them standards. And by the way, what standards God gives you are different than what standards God's going to give somebody else in some cases. He'll deal with that through the Holy Spirit in your heart. And he has this, this moral goodness to the right that's beyond his moral center. But also he has things that are not wrong, they're not sinful, but maybe they're not wise. And he has an extreme, and to him, in his mind, based on the Word of God and what he's studying here, anything beyond this, this area of, um, let's call this the, the downside of his morality, there's a boundary, there's a border, a line that he will not cross. And anything beyond that, 
in his mind is deviant. In other words, it's sinful, it's wrong, it's outside the will of God. The Bible talks about in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, that there are weights and sins which doth so easily beset us. Weights are not necessarily sinful, but they're things that perhaps can hinder or squander or squelch our spiritual growth. And so he has a set of morals that are also deviant. And at this point, that's a line he just absolutely will not ever cross. But it may not be where the center of his morals are. Let's say Brother Keith has a child. And uh, we're going to let George be his firstborn. George, come on over here for a minute. So George is his firstborn. And he raises George in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and takes him to the Bible principles and teaches him. What this author was trying to get across is that generally speaking, there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, and I believe the Bible even kind of lends itself to this idea, that George is going to now center his morals not on the Word of God, but he's now going to center his morals at the extreme point of the morals of his father. And he's going to have extreme good. To him, extreme good. Put your left arm out there behind Brother Keith's back. Brother George's extreme good is nothing more than just the reasonable to Brother Keith. Do we see this? And he's also going to have what he considers deviant or something that's the extreme or the line that he will not cross. George has another. George has a child. This is now Brother Keith's grandchild, Smitty. And George now takes and raises Smitty according to his moral center. See the difference here? He's now raising him to the moral center, not to the standard of God's word. And so Smitty comes along, and when he's old enough to be a man, almost a full-grown man, and he uh, uh, becomes what he ought to be and sets his moral center, it's going to be at the extreme of his father. He's going to have moral goodness. And he's going to say the exceptional, above and beyond the reproach, is at the center of where my father's moral center was. But I want you to notice this. George, I'm going to have you step out. You guys stay right where you're at. Step forward a little bit. I want you to notice now that by the third generation, generally speaking, this young man's exceptionally good, what he thinks is above and beyond moral appropriateness, is at the exact opposite deviant side of his grandfather. Thank you guys. You can have a seat for just a minute. I want us to understand that through this digression, even as God's people, many times we begin to lose the sense of the sinfulness of sin. We begin, and I don't know how it happens, I guess a lot of times it happens just in the way that we raise our kids or perhaps the things that we expect from them or don't expect from them. But we get to the place where we do not any longer teach them the morals of God's Word. And we try to set them up based on the moral center of where we are. By the way, let me just say this, and then we're going to move on. Standards are not wrong. They're not a bad thing. I know, I know a lot of times independent Baptists get a black eye about some things regarding their standards. Can I tell you this? Standards help to protect the moral center of the principles of God's Word. They help to keep us from those things. They're fences that even if we fall over them, at least we've not ruined and destroyed our life. They're, they're there as barriers. They're there to help us and protect us. Now look with me at Romans chapter 8, and you say, Brother Greg, this is such a negative, negative thing. No, I want you to see this. This is amazing to me because 
so often we, we lose the sinfulness of sin. I believe we live in a day where even God, it's, it's amazing to me, and I'm just going to say this in passing, I'm going to be careful how I say this. But it absolutely astounds me that any Christian that names the name of Christ can support anything that has to do with murdering babies. Just don't understand it. You say, Brother Greg, how did we get there? We have defined our deviance down. We've gotten to the point where now the very best that we consider in our life was the deviancy of two generations ago, three generations ago. We have lost the sinfulness of sin. What God calls abomination is now acceptable and encouraged. You say, well, I believe God is a God of love. He is. There is no doubt about it. If He was not, there would be no salvation. There would be no Calvary. There would be no desire of the Lord not to see anybody perish, but that all of them would get saved and come to repentance. That, that God's desire is not to send men to hell. We know that because He did send all of the angels there, didn't He? Didn't even give Him a chance. But because He loves you and I, and it's only because of His love, we have a chance to at least be saved. I'm not saying He's not a God of love, but I am saying this. We as God's people need to get back to preaching and teaching. He is also a holy God, and He is also a just God. And it's one of these things that we have lost along the way. Now, I want you to notice this as we get to chapter number 8. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 1. The Bible says, There is therefore now, what? No condemnation. Aren't you glad of that? Well, Brother Greg, what happens when I sin, when I do wrong? It's, it's, such, appalling, it's such an appalling thing to God, and God looks at it in such a horrible manner. Uh, what happens when, when I do something wrong after I'm saved? What happens if, I, if I'm not doing right? I am thankful that the Holy Spirit, that God said uh, uh, in Hebrews chapter number 8 and Hebrews chapter number 9, that Christ is the surety, that He's the guarantor of our salvation. I'm thankful my salvation is not dependent on me living a perfect life. I'm thankful it's dependent upon Him having lived a perfect life, dying in place of me. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are what? In Christ Jesus, those that have put their faith and trust in shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is not a requirement to be saved. This is the result of being saved. Those that are in Christ Jesus are those that are identified as those that don't walk after the flesh anymore. They walk after the Spirit. Now here's the problem we have as God's people many times. Look with me, if you will, to Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5, and let's begin in verse number 11. Paul says this, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be, what's the next word here? Romans chapter 5, am I, I'm sorry, Romans chapter number 6, verse number 11. I apologize for that, that's the wrong chapter. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be, Dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have a principle of Scripture here. That when we get saved, we receive the opportunity and the power and the privilege, and at that moment of salvation, we are dead to sin. Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ, the old man, the old nature. Nevertheless, I live. And we are made alive unto the Spirit. 
Now look with me in chapter number 5, if you will. And I was back, I was ahead of myself a little bit. Verse number 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, as God's people, that brings great joy to my heart that there's not enough sin that grace cannot cover it. I'm thankful for that. But if we're not careful, we'll take this biblical principle and we will begin to define down the deviance of sinfulness. We'll begin to say sin is not that sinful because in the abundance of sin, I also have abundance of grace. I'm thankful for the abundance of grace. But that does not give me the right to have abundance of sin. As we read in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 11. He goes on to say in verse number 1 of chapter number 6, all right, let's back up to verse 21 of chapter 5, that as sin hath reigned unto death, so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may what? Abound. In other words, there were people that were thinking, boy, if God's grace surmounts my sin, then can I not just go out here and, uh, you know, come as I am and leave as I are, you know, and live my own life? Can I not just do what I want to do? I'll tell you what, God's grace is sufficient. I'll go out here and I can go out and get drunk and I can live and carouse and follow after the carnality of this world and God's grace is sufficient. And can I tell you this? It is. But Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in it that grace may abound? Look what he says here, verse number 2. God, what? Forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? People talk about, boy, it just doesn't matter how I live my life. God knows my heart. He sure does. He sure does. I was reading this week a Puritan writer from the 1600s, and I came across uh, a statement that he made, and I want to read it to you very quickly. Because it deals with the fact that when we sin and we have no conscience about it, it has lost its sinfulness to us. There's no conscience involved, or very little at best. This is what, in essence, we're saying when we sin. And I want you to listen to what he writes. He says, in short, sin is the dare of God's justice. In other words, he's saying, God's a just God. God, I dare you do your worst. Oh, we don't come out and say that. But when we sin without conscience, when we sin with no moral uh, degradation to it and no no hindrance to it in our hearts or in our lives we're in essence saying i believe god is a just god and i just dare you based on the blood of the lord jesus christ is he going to go against that we dare his justice we abuse his mercy we jeer at his patience the slight of his power the contempt of his love As one writer continues to express this ugly thing, this writer, this Puritan writer says this, we may go on, 
and say it is the upbraiding of His providence, the scoff at His promises, the reproach of His wisdom. And it is said of the man of sin, Satan himself, it opposes and exalts itself above all that is called God and above all that God is called, so that it is as God. And sitteth in the temple of God. The sin that I have. Showing itself as it were. To be God. We get to the place where sin is no longer sinful to you and I. It has successfully found its seat. On the throne of our lives. You say brother Greg is it really all that important that sin be called sin? Oh absolutely. Is it really all that important that we look at sin from a, a viewpoint of what God looks at it? Oh, yes. Yes. Doesn't mean we have to be mean or hateful. But there needs to be a revival among God's people of saying right is still right and wrong is still wrong. Not by what the, not by what the world says, but according to what the Bible says. The Bible says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. This idea of defining deviance down. This idea of sin losing its sinfulness. Look with me in Romans chapter 8 and we'll be done here shortly. Verse number 1, we found there is therefore now no condemnation in them which are in Christ Jesus. And I'm thankful for that. But we need to be characterized by this, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For saved today, that ought to be the desire of our hearts. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of what? Sin and death. Do you realize that before you got saved, we were under bondage, weren't we? There's no more condemnation now. We've been made free from the law of sin and death. We do not have to live in sin any longer. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Seems like this is kind of a continuing theme, doesn't it? We went on and read this as our text. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You've been at that point where you don't seem to have a whole lot of life, don't have a lot of peace, don't have a lot of joy in the Christian life. But you're not in the flesh, verse number 9, but in the Spirit. Notice this. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in in you. You say, Brother Greg, who are those that are in the Spirit? Those that are saved. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. When we sin without conscience, without any kind of moral deviance in our hearts or in our minds about it, we're trying to say, I don't believe the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. We forsake and don't understand the omniscience and omnipresence of an Almighty God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you now. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. 
And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is what? Life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. That word quicken, to make alive by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Who's the man that walks after the Spirit but not after the flesh? Only those that have the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. And Paul said in verse number 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What about this thing of sin? Well, let me ask you this question. Are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? Then it has no place in our bodies. What about this thing of the sinfulness of sin? How bad really is it, Pastor? It sent my Savior to a cross. It's so bad that those that do not take the free gift of eternal life that Christ makes readily available to them, the justness of God has no alternative but to send them to a hell. The sinfulness of sin. We've lost it. In the day and age that we live, we've lost it. An unsaved person with the gospel. If we understood it, if we saw how wicked that we hear. If we could understand the sinfulness of sin, I believe there'd be a lot cleaner and holy living. And I believe Christians would be a lot saltier than they are now. I believe their lights would be a lot brighter than they are now. The Bible teaches that a Christian, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, ought to remain what the Bible refers to as unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world. The sad fact of the matter is we go through our day and we go through our life and we allow world spots to get on us here and there. We don't ever wash them off. We don't ever come to God and forsake those things, ask forgiveness for them, restore that relationship with Him. We don't get into God's Word and allow its cleansing effect to purify our hearts and our minds. You say, Brother Greg, how do, I, how do I gain victory over this thing? How do I get victory over sin? Well, we've got to see it for what it is first. We've got to see it for its sinfulness, its ugliness, its wickedness, its vileness in the sight of God. Remember when Job was, God was talking to Satan about his servant Job, and he says, Hast thou considered my servant Job? 
talks about his justness and his uprightness. But he referred to him as one who eschewed evil. Hated it. Could not stand it. Detested it. I wonder how we look at the sin in our life. Are we comfort- is, it, is it that pet that we have that we, we put off in a dark corner somewhere hoping nobody sees and we nurture it and we water it and we feed it? We take care of it? Or is it something that we just absolutely cannot stand? Is it something that in our heads hang in shame before God as we walk with Him and spend time with Him daily and say, God, I can't believe I did that and with sorrowful heart repent of it? Has sin lost its sinfulness? Have we gotten to the place where we're comfortable with it? Where those sins are okay, we can leave them in our lives. No big deal. Well, I'll tell you, there needs to, there needs to be a regular time in my life and in your life that we sit down and we say, Lord, I want to see these sins for what they are. I, I, want, I want to see them the way you see them. I want to have a hatred for them the way that you have a hatred for them. I want to despise them. I want to get them out of my life. I want to walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. Is sin sinful to you today? If you're here this morning, you say, Brother Greg, I don't know if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. Can I tell you this? Sin condemns us. Not God, sin. God came, not that we would be condemned, but that we would be saved. He sent His Son to die on a cross to redeem us from the condemnation of sin. To be able to be made free from the law of sin and death. If you're saved here this morning, I I ask you this question, and I ask you this as a man who battles it just as much as any other person in this room does. Is sin sinful to you? Do we really understand the impact, the vileness of sinfulness? The hurt that it causes our God? How much He cannot stand and despises it? Maybe there's some things that we need to look at in our lives that we've been holding on to and say, you know what? I've had this in my life and it really hasn't been... Uh, something that's important to me. I've held on to it. It's a sin. There are times that we commit sin. But you know the Bible says, To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And I'm going to tell you, I, I, I know we have our share of committing sin. But I'll tell you the thing I don't look at a whole lot in my life that I need to look at is how often God wanted me to do something. I I look at soul winning. How often I've come across the path of somebody. And I knew God wanted me to share the gospel with them. How much do we detest those things? Let's stand together, shall we? With heads bowed and eyes closed. Has sin lost its sinfulness? I believe the truth of the matter is every single one of us in this room battled this thought, this mindset to some degree. Some perhaps more than others. Sin sent my Savior to the cross of Calvary. 
Sin is that which condemns men who do not trust Christ as their Savior to a hell that was never intended for them. And yet we, we tend to play around with it, don't we? We tend to just let it have its way in our life and we just kind of hide it and shelter it. Would be, would be to God that God's people would say, Lord, I want you to search my heart. Get into the crevices. Get into the corners. Find these things and, Lord, show them. By the way, we don't have to usually look very hard to find them, do we? Lord, I want to get them right. I don't want sin to reign in my mortal body. I've been made free from the law of sin and death. Why would I want to go back and put myself under its servitude again? Is sin sinful to you? Father, we pray that you'll bless the invitation time. If there's someone here that does not know you as Savior, I pray that you would see your Holy Spirit would convict them and see that need. Get that matter settled. For those that are Christians today, Lord, may we have a renewed view of sinfulness, the wickedness that is in this world that we have grown so accustomed to. I pray that you'll bless the invitation time, and Lord, use it as you would see fit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed, if God's spoken to your heart.